Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. There's a story that for centuries has been known as the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story that Jesus tells in in Luke chapter 15. It's the story about a son who takes his father's inheritance and he wastes it all and then returns and finds a forgiving father. But it's a mistake for us to think that this is a story about just one son. It's actually a tale of two sons. A younger son and an elder son. And when Jesus tells the story, he actually wants us to be able to compare them because in comparing them, we see the radical message that Jesus is actually leading us to. And so this morning, I want to speak from this subject, the tale of two sons. One of the challenges as a preacher is being able to cross historical distance, right? That you and I are part of a 21st century culture. We're familiar with it. No one has to explain to us our culture. We're a part of it. We, We get it. But one of the things we do when we open the Bible is we're trying to cross an historical distance because for the original hearers in the first century, they too were a part of a culture that they were aware of. And sometimes some of the things that are part of a first century culture are lost on us because we're aware of our culture, but maybe not as familiar with what things were like in the first century. And so this morning, what I want to try and do is maybe cross that distance between the 21st century and the first, and maybe try and put us a little bit in Jesus's story So we have an idea of what actually Jesus is trying to communicate. He's telling us a story about two sons wanting for us to compare them in order to lead us to a radical message about God's grace. Luke chapter 15 and verse 11, this is what the Bible says. You can read along on the screen if you want. It says, then he, talking about Jesus, said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he'd spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. But when he Come to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to be merry. Verse 25, Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fattened calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him, so he answered and said to his father, look, these many years I've been serving you, I've never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you've never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. 
But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you've killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should be merry, that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus tells this parable in in Luke chapter 15 about these two sons. And he begins by introducing us to a younger son who makes a short and shocking request. He asks his father to give him his share of the estate. And for the first century hearers who are hearing Jesus tell this parable, as I've just read it to us this morning, but for those hearing this request in the first century, they would have been aghast at the audacity of this son to be able to make such a request. There was nothing wrong with an expectation that he would share in the family wealth. There were two brothers, and so therefore the the eldest brother would receive two-thirds of the family's money and estate, and the younger brother would receive a third. There was nothing wrong with an expectation to share in that wealth, but that division only occurred once the father had died. But this son is actually asking for his share of the inheritance while his dad is still living. As one historian put it, to ask for the inheritance while his father is is still alive is to wish his father dead. And so when the hearers of of this story that Jesus tells in the first century, when they hear the audacity of this request from the son, they're aghast at what he's saying. Because ultimately what this son is saying is he's saying, I want my father's stuff, but I don't want my father. His relationship with his father has been a means to an end. And so he's saying, give me what is mine. And even more shocking than the request is actually the response of the father. And that in the first century, one of the things you've got to understand, right, is this is an intensely patriarchal society. That respect for one's elders is huge. And, and so the traditional response to this kind of request from a younger son what would be to drive this son out of the home, even with physical violence. To, to say such a thing, to, to wish your own father dead. And yet, this is not what the father in Jesus' story does. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, Jesus says that he divided his property between them. That's significant. That word property in the Greek is actually the word bios. It means life. The study of biology is the study of life. Literally what the scripture is saying is that the father divided his life between them. And so the story really says that the the father divided his life. Why does it say that? Because the father's estate was his land. And the father's wealth was primarily in his land. And so in order for him to be able to get a third of his net worth, he would have to sell off a third of his estate in order to be able to make that happen. And in that day, particularly in the first century, people's very identity was bound up in their land. If you lost your land, then you lost yourself. If you lost part of your land, then you lost part of your social standing and status in the community. And so ultimately, the younger brother is asking his father to tear his life apart, to tear his status apart, to tear his standing apart in the community. And what's amazing is that the father actually does it. And so Jesus' listeners, as he's telling this parable, have never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond like this. The father endures this tremendous loss of honor and pain, but it doesn't diminish his love for his son. Instead, the father maintains his affection And bears the agony. And here's the youngest son's plan. That 
he'll go to a far country and, and live life to the full. And that's exactly what he does. He goes to a far country, but in the end, what he ends up doing is squandering all of the wealth. He finds himself living with pigs when he finally comes to his senses. And so in making this point, he finds himself feeding the pigs and so desperate and so hungry that he's actually longing for what the pigs are eating. And so he comes to his senses. Isn't that true for people that at some point in our lives, we finally come to our senses and recognize where we are and wonder, how did we end up here? How did we get to this point? And that's what happens to this younger son, that he finally gets to this point and Jesus says he comes to his senses. And so he devises this plan that he will go back to his father and go back as a hired hand. And the first part of his plan is that he's going to go home, right? That when he comes to his senses, he realizes, I'm so far from that relationship in my life. That that home in Jesus' story is not primarily a place, it's actually a relationship where you're accepted. And so the first part of his plan is that he's going to go home, but the second part of his plan is that he'll go home and make restitution. He says, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired men. Notice in Jesus' story, he says, hired men, not slave. There's a difference. His request is not to become a slave of his father, but to become a hired man. Servants in the first century worked on the estate and they also lived there, but hired men were different. Hired men were like tradesmen who lived in the local village and earned a wage. Why does the son say, make me like one of your hired men? Because he realizes that an apology is not sufficient. He needs to make restitution. And so his plan is to say, well, well, take me on as one of your apprentices of one of your hired men so that I can begin to pay off my debt to you. What he's really saying is, is, is I realize I can't simply say, sorry, I, I need to pay you back. And so this is his plan. Having come to his senses in this faraway country, having squandered everything he's got and realizing, hold on, even the servants, even the hired men who work for my dad, they have bread to be able to spare. And here I am starving and longing for the food that's in the pig pen. I need to go back. And so he begins to make the long journey home, rehearsing the speech. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Let me pay you back, dad. And you can imagine this, that, that for every step he takes on this long journey home, he's rehearsing this speech. And as Jesus continues the story, what, what he says is that the father has actually been waiting and longing to see the son. And so he's been watching every day on the horizon for his son to return. And when he sees his son returning with his head down and rehearsing his speech, the father seeing him coming from a long way off, he runs to meet him. This is one of those details that's kind of lost on us in the 21st century. It kind of seems like we kind of imagine it like those, those like romantic scenes where people are like running towards each other in slow motion at the beach. And so we imagine it kind of like that. But, but in the first century, when, when the original hearers of Jesus' story hear that the, that the father runs to meet his son, they're kind of shocked by that because as a rule, distinguished patriarchs did not run in the first century. Children would run. Youths would run, sometimes even women might run, but it was seen as uncouth for a man to gather up his garments, expose his ankles and run. And so as a rule in the first century, men never ran. And yet in Jesus' story, when the prodigal is coming towards home, even while he's still a long way off, the father sees him coming and doesn't care who else is watching, he runs to meet his son. 
That the son in Jesus' story is so taken by surprise, he, he, he tries to deliver his speech. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired men. And even as he's trying to deliver this speech that he's been rehearsing, the, the father sort of cuts him off. The, the father kind of ignores that and, and instead kind of stops him and takes his robe and places it on the son. He puts his best robe on him. It's the unmistakable sign of restored standing in the family. In other words, what the father is trying to communicate is, is I'm not going to wait until you've tried to pay off your debt. I'm not going to wait until you've groveled. I'm not going to, you're not going to earn your way back into this family. I'm simply going to take you back. I'll cover your nakedness and poverty and rags with the robes of my office and honor. And so he takes the best robe and he puts it on the sun, that unmistakable sign of restored standing. And then he also gives him a ring. In those days, you didn't do business with signatures on bits of paper. You sealed them with the ring of the family crest. And so in other words, the father doesn't just accept this son back, but he gives him the full status of sonship. He didn't earn it. He doesn't deserve it. It was an act of absolute grace. And so the message is really simple. That God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin and wrongdoing. That it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is no evil that the Father's house cannot pardon or cover. There's no sin that can match the Father's grace. That this is actually not a prodigal son. This is a prodigal God in the story. That the word prodigal actually doesn't mean reckless. What, what the word prodigal means is, is not wrongdoing. What the word prodigal actually means is reckless spendthrift. It means to spend and to spend and to spend until you have nothing left. Think about it. It's not a prodigal son. It's a prodigal father. Because the father pronounces love before the son has cleaned up his life. Before he's even recited his speech. But what Jesus is trying to communicate is that God's love is so lavish towards us that, that nothing, not even abject contrition, can merit the favor of God. That the Father's love and acceptance is completely and totally free. That Jesus is trying to show us that some people are like the younger son. That they want the things that God provides, but they don't really want God. That they want their independence. That they, they want to be able to live their own way. And they believe that in doing so, it'll bring them happiness. And some of them, and you and I can testify to this, at one day decide to come home. And because the father in the parable represents God, we're being told that no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, if you come home, you'll find a God that loves you and cares for you and wants to forgive you. Yeah. And all of us, aren't we? All of us are like the younger son. That when we first come to God, don't we say, I I'm not worthy. I, I need to be able to earn my way back. I I'm going to try my and pull my socks up and, and try and be a good Christian and, and try in some way earn God's love. And God will have nothing of it. He gives us the full right as sons and daughters. He confers sonship on us. It's not something that we earn. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, he says, for he, talking about God, made him, talking about Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That at the cross, we exchange our brokenness 
for God's grace. That we get to exchange our shame for his righteousness. And we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It is completely free. We simply receive it. We're made right not because of our goodness, but actually because God has been good to us. And here's the truth. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've listened to the last eight and a half minutes and thought to yourself, I know this story. Because that's typically where we stop the Bible lesson. The son was lost, but now he's found. The problem's resolved. There's three lost things. There's a lost sheep, and the shepherd goes after that. And there's a lost coin, and the woman goes after that. Now there's a lost son, and the son's now back. But right here, towards the end of Luke 15, Jesus actually introduces a fourth lost thing. He introduces a lost older brother. And to understand why Jesus does that, you have to understand who was there when Jesus tells this story. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, this is what the Bible says. It says, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying... The truth is we think about the, this parable in Luke 15 in the most sentimental terms. We imagine that, that eHarmony and Kleenex wrote this story together. Right? We imagine that Jesus tells this beautiful story about a loving father who forgives people and then everyone is just like wiping tears away from their eyes and everyone's just, because it's so sentimental. But when Jesus tells this story, no one is wiping away tears. People are picking up rocks because they're offended by what he's actually saying. Because Jesus' purpose in telling this parable was not to give us a moving story that evangelists would use in altar calls to be able to guilt trip people into be able to say yes to Jesus for hundreds of years. Okay, you lost that one. (laughs) What Jesus was trying to communicate is that everything you've heard and everything you've ever thought about how to approach God is wrong. Jesus continues in Luke 15 and verse 25, and this is what he says. Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And so he he called to one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fattened calf. Well, the older brother hears this, and he's furious. He, He actually refuses to go into the party, making a public spectacle of the fact that he is not going to go in there. He remains outside, voting with his feet in a public show of defiance against his father. Essentially, what he's saying is, I refuse to be a part of the same family as that younger brother is a part of. And so it forces the father to have to leave the celebration and to come out and to plead with his eldest son. I want you to see how abrasive the elder brother is towards his father and about his brother. Luke 15 verse 29. So he answered and said to his father, look, These many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, and you killed a fattened calf for him. Notice how demeaning he is of the father. He doesn't address him as father. He doesn't address him as esteemed father. He says, look here. He's going to have his moment of reckoning with the father. And so he says, look here. Notice how outraged he is. Notice he doesn't say, my brother. He says, this son of yours, right? And so notice how much he's demeaning the father. He's showing total disownment. He's the only one who actually goes into the type of sins the brother is caught up in. 
It's only through the older brother that we find out that he actually wasted his money with prostitutes. No one else told us that in the story, but the older brother was very keen for everyone to know how he'd lost his money. He's particularly angry because of what this thing cost. The thing that he's upset about is the fatted calf, which again is one of those things that in the 21st century is like, why are you upset about that? Even when you listen to the language, you never even gave me a goat to make merry with my friends, but you gave a fattened calf to him. Just doesn't seem like an insult that would appear on a TikTok video, does it? But that's what he's upset about. He's upset about the fattened calf. Why? Because in the first century, in that society, meat wasn't included with all meals. Meat was very expensive. And the most expensive delicacy was actually the fattened calf. It'd be saved for a very great occasion, for a wedding or something of that like. And so because it was such a delicacy, it was only saved for the rarest of occasions. And so word would have spread around the whole village that actually that the father has killed a fattened calf and they're holding a celebration. Everybody would have come to this. And so why is the older brother so upset? This is the greatest day in the father's life. But the eldest son can't see that. He doesn't even care. What does the older brother care about? He cares about the father's things. But he doesn't really care about the father. He cares about the estate. He cares about the father's things, but he doesn't actually care about the father's heart. He says, you've never even given me a goat for a party, and yet you've given him the fattened calf. And so when the father goes out and pleads with the eldest son, he says to him, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. And that's literally true. Because a third of the estate has already gone to the youngest brother who squandered it, and everything that remains is actually the property of the eldest son to be transferred to him when the father dies. And so when he divided the estate, the younger brother's already taken his portion. And so all that the older brother can see is his share diminishing. So the older brother's adding it up. He's given him a ring, and he's given him new sandals, and he's given him the best robe, and he's killed a fattened calf, and he's adding it up in his mind. And he thinks to himself, well, I've worked hard and I've earned all of this, but my brother, he's done nothing. And so where's the justice in this? And so he says to his father, I never disobeyed you. I deserve to be consulted about this. And so as Jesus is telling this story, you can imagine for those original hearers, they're wondering how will the father respond to the older brother's open rebellion? The truth is the father might have disowned the son on the spot. But instead, that's not what the father does in Jesus' story. Instead, he responds in tenderness. He says, my son, despite how you've treated me, I still want you at the feast. I'm not going to disown you, and I'm not going to disown your younger brother either. So come on, swallow your pride and come and join us. And at this point, all of the listeners to this story that Jesus is telling are on the edge of their seats. Because how will the story end? Will the family be reunited? Will will, will the brothers be reconciled? Will will the elder brother soften his heart and and take up the father's offer? And and with all those questions still lingering in the air, Jesus just sort of stops the story. He he doesn't give us any further details. He he finishes the whole story with this dramatic non-conclusion. And So what is it that Jesus is trying to get across to us? He's trying to show us that there's two boys, that one is bad and one is good, but both are actually alienated from the father. That it's not one lost son, it's actually two lost sons. That both of these sons, they want the father's things, but they actually don't want the father. 
that they've been trying to use the father to get the things that they really want. What they really want is the wealth and the status. And so they'll use the father to be able to try and get it. They just go about it by doing it two very different ways. That one has been trying to do that by being very, very bad. And the other has been trying to do that by being very, very good. And what Jesus is pointing out is that these two lifestyles are way more alike than they actually appear. Think about it. What did the youngest brother want most and how did he try and get it? He was trying to get control by leaving and disobeying. But what did the eldest brother want most and how did he try and get it? He was trying to get control by staying and obeying. They were different behaviors, but exactly the same root cause. That each wanted to be in a position where they could tell the father what to do. They just went about it by two totally different means. That neither son loved the father for himself. They loved the father simply for what they could get. And so what Jesus is trying to point out is that you can rebel by breaking all the rules, yes, but you can also rebel by keeping all of the rules. What Jesus is ultimately doing in Luke chapter 15 is not trying to give us a sentimental story. What he's actually trying to do is redefine sin for us. That most people think of sin as failing to keep the rules. But Jesus is pointing out that you can keep all the rules and you can still be wrong because you think you have rights. That God owes you because you've earned it. So the elder brother feels that he has rights. Jesus is pointing out that beneath sharply different behavior is actually the exact same heart motivation. That Jesus shows that a man who's violated almost nothing on the list of things you shouldn't do can be just as lost as the brother who wasted his inheritance with harlots. Why? Because sin is not breaking the rules. Sin in its root cause is making yourself the Savior, putting yourself in the position of Savior and Lord. And so what religion seeks to do is to be able to break the world into two groups, the good group and the bad group, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't divide the world into good and into bad. Jesus says that everyone's lost and everyone's loved and everyone's invited. By contrast, older brothers divide the world into two, the good and the bad. A number of years ago, a paper posed this question in their editorial, what is wrong with the world? And a great writer, G.K. Chesterton, wrote back to the editorial, Dear Sirs, I am... Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's the attitude of someone who's really understood the message of Jesus. That there's actually two kinds of lostness. That's why Jesus put the older brother in the parable. That you can escape God as much through morality and religion as you can through immorality and irreligion. That there's a lot of Christians who, who hold the older brother type of heart. That for you and I, if in our heart of hearts we say, well, you know, I try really hard. And I go to church on Sundays and, and I even tithe and I'm obedient and, and I even serve. I'm serving at the women's event. Therefore, God, you owe it to me to answer my prayers and give me a relatively good life and to take me to heaven when I die. Then Jesus is your model and Jesus is your example and he might even be your boss. But the one thing he's not, he's not your savior. Because you're seeking to be your own savior by doing enough of those good things to make up the tally. And so older brothers obey to get things from God. And when those things aren't forthcoming, they get very, very angry. Come on, you and I have done this at times, haven't we? Where God didn't answer the prayer we wanted him to answer. 
And we felt that we had a right to be able to challenge him on it. The Christians who make Jesus Savior, they don't obey to get, they obey simply to get God. Just to resemble him. Just to love him. Just to know him. Just just to delight in him. And suddenly you begin to realize who these two sons represent in Jesus' story. Remember who Jesus is talking to, who's listening to this. He's talking to tax collectors and sinners, younger brother types, and Pharisees and teachers of the law, older brother types. The two brothers are basically the two basic ways that human beings try to make the world right, try to make themselves right, and try to relate to God. That younger brothers kind of represent self-discovery, right? That I'm going to live as I see fit, and I'm going to go and determine what's right and wrong for me, and I'm going to go and find my true self, right? That self-discovery path. But then the older brother types who are the moral conformist path. I'm going to be very, very good. And I'm going to try very, very hard. And I'm not going to break any rules. And I'm going to do everything right. And both insist that they're right and that everyone else should live that way. We kind of see that in Western society, right? We talk about the division of society. That on one side of the ledger, there's people saying, the problem with this world is, is immoral people. That's the problem with this world. It's immoral people are the problem. And then there's another side of the divide that says, you know what, it's those bigoted, narrow-minded people, they're the problem. And both sides of the ledger are pointing at the other, and Jesus is saying, you're both wrong. Jesus' message is actually that both approaches are wrong, that both sons are wrong, but the story doesn't end on the same note for each. That in Jesus' story, it's the elder brother who's left in an alienated state. And this would have been... This would have been offensive to those that are hearing this because the lover of prostitutes is in the party and the guy who's done nothing wrong is outside of the party. You can almost hear that the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law kind of gasp at that, like, like surely not that we would be left outside of this, of this celebration. But what gets even more shocking is that why is it that the older brother won't go in? The older brother actually tells us why he won't go into the party. He tells us, because I never disobeyed you. Listen to this. The elder brother isn't losing the father's love in spite of his goodness. He's losing it because of his goodness. It's not his sins that are keeping him from the father. It's his own moral pride. Why? Because both brothers are equally wrong but both conditions aren't equally dangerous. That the younger brother knows he's away from the father and knows that he needs to come back. And when he finally comes to his senses, he can acknowledge how far away he is from his father. But for the elder brother, he's been living under his father's nose the whole time, but he hasn't noticed the the religious pride growing in his own heart. And so for the younger brother, it's obvious he knows he needs to repent, but the older brother is blind to his true condition and so doesn't realize there's a need to repent. Ultimately, what the older brother is saying is, how dare you say that? Like, like, I've done all of the right things, and Jesus says it doesn't matter. And here's what was radical about Jesus' message here in Luke 15, is that no one had ever taught that before. What's amazing to me is that Jesus hands down, has to be the greatest storyteller of all time, right? So why would a storyteller as amazing as Jesus 
and maybe as the worship team comes back this morning, why would a worship, why would a storyteller as amazing as Jesus end the story without a conclusion? It's because Jesus doesn't just want us to compare the two brothers. He also wants us to see ourselves in the story. That, that we need something that's missing in our own lives. Ultimately, what Jesus is helping us to be able to see is, is to answer the question, how do we come home? That there's only one way home, and Jesus says we need three things. Here they are. Firstly, we need the initiating love of God. That it's the father who goes out to both sons, right? The father runs to the youngest son while he's still a long way off. And the father leaves the party and then goes and meets the older brother outside. We need the initiating love of God. That's why in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, the scripture says, We love God because he first loved us. And so we need the initiating love of God. How do we come home? We need the initiating love of God. Aren't you grateful that Jesus wasn't waiting for us to get everything right? That Jesus wasn't waiting for us to make our way to him. Instead, he made his way to us. If God was waiting for us to make our way to him, he would still be waiting. But God, rich in mercy, sent his son. The initiating love of God. Here's the second thing we need if we're ever going to make it home. We need to learn to repent from something besides just our sins. Timothy Keller put it this way. He said, Christians not only repent of their sins, but they also repent for the very reasons they ever did anything right. It's in repentance that we transfer our trust from ourselves and our way of living to Jesus for our salvation. Repentance is a word that's almost lost in our culture. But it's the only prerequisite to receiving the grace of God is to repent. God's mercy is for every single person, regardless of whether or not they've repented. God's mercy affords us the time to be able to repent and in repentance receive a grace far more undeserved than you and I could possibly imagine. But it comes at the cost of admitting that we actually need God. And here's the third one. We, we need the initiating love of God. We need to learn to repent from something besides just our sins. And here's the third one. We need to be grateful for what it costs to bring us home. Truth is, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus doesn't tell his story in isolation. He tells three stories in a row. He tells a story of a lost sheep. And the shepherd, realizing that there's 99, but that one is missing, the shepherd goes and searches for the sheep. Then he tells a story of a woman who's lost a coin. And so she turns her whole house upside down looking for this coin. And then Jesus tells the parable of two lost sons. And so Jesus' audience are hearing him tell these parables, right? knowing who is in the crowd and listening to what he's got to say. And so at the end of Jesus' third story, they're wondering who should go after the son? Because the shepherd went after the sheep and the woman went after the coin, but who was supposed to go after the son? No one goes after the lost son. Why? Because Jesus is trying to get us to ask that question, who should go after the younger brother? Anyone in that first century culture would have known exactly whose responsibility it was. It was the older brother's job to go and rescue the son. The reason why an older brother would receive a double portion of the inheritance was 
because it fell to him as his responsibility when the father passed on to be able to make the family a family. And so if anything came up in the future, then that older brother would have the means by which to keep the family together. And so the double portion wasn't simply because he was more favored. It was because of the responsibility he had. And so Jesus puts this older brother in the story who won't go after the younger brother in order that we might ask the question, whose responsibility was it? It was his job to make the family a family. And so a good older brother would have went to his father and said, my younger brother has gone off and his life is in ruins. Let me go and search for him and bring him home. Even if it costs me great expense, let me do it, dad. Jesus puts a bad older brother in the story in order that you and I might long for a better one. Because there is a true and better older brother who though it cost him greatly, would come and find us and bring us home. God puts an older brother in the story who's, who's not very kind because he wants us to long for a better one. Come on, we don't need the kind of older brother who would venture to the next town or country to come and find us. We need the kind of older brother who would cross from heaven to earth to come and find us. We don't need the kind of older brother who would, who would loosen the, the strings on his on his money bag to be able to buy us back. We we need the kind of older brother who would spare no expense, not even his own life, to be able to do that. And so as you stand to your feet this morning, I'd love to pray for us. Because Jesus puts this older brother in the story, yes, for us to ask who should have gone after him, but, but also for us to long for a true and better older brother. And there is an older brother. His name is Jesus. And he didn't venture to the next town. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he made himself of no reputation. He stepped down out of heaven and he walked this earth. We have an older brother who didn't spare any expense, not even his own life. He came searching for us. And so in Jesus' story, he's not giving us a sentimental story about a brother who gets lost and a dad who receives him back. He's actually telling us far more than that. And this morning, maybe even as I've been sharing, there's been parts of this message that maybe you already knew, but maybe they've been illuminated afresh in your own heart. That for some of us this morning, maybe we find ourselves again in the position of that younger brother. Maybe we've been away from God and maybe even coming to church today is a part of us coming to our senses and going, what what have I been doing? Why have I been living this way? I I need to come back. I need to find God's grace and forgiveness. And maybe at one time you knew that, but you've walked away. You've gone your own way. And today is a reckoning of coming to your own senses. Maybe for some people in this room, that that would be true for you. But maybe for others who are here today, you'd say, do you know what? I found myself like the younger brother trying to earn my way back. Instead of just receiving God's grace, I find myself trying to to tally the ledger so I can earn God's love and earn God's grace. And you can't. And maybe for others of us, we've found ourselves maybe even identifying with the story of the older brother. The, the, The subtlety of pride is that it almost convinces you it's not there. But it's true for all of us, isn't it? That we can find ourselves slipping into a religious way of viewing our relationship with God a religious way of viewing other people, counting ourselves as being okay because of all the good things we do and finally feeling like we have some sort of right to God. And so this morning before we finish, I'd just love to pray for every single person. 
just that God would use this message to do a work in our hearts and lives today. And so, Lord, I just thank you right now for every single person who's in this room. God, I just ask right now by your grace and by your spirit that you would move. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would seal this message in our hearts. That, Lord, at the right moments, Lord, even this week, that you'd bring it back to our remembrance. Holy Spirit, that you would challenge us, all of us, myself included, to love you and to serve you, not to get anything else, just to get you. Not to try and earn our way into your good books and not to feel so far that we could never call upon your name. That, Lord, we would find that simple trust and faith in your goodness. Lord, I thank you today that you would help us to live those kind of lives. That, God, you would break our hearts, Lord, for what breaks yours. Lord, you would break our hearts, God, for people who haven't yet come to know your grace the same way that we have. Lord, let us never, ever lose sight of that. In Jesus' name. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're just about to finish. But just before we do, I just want to give every person a chance to be able to respond, not to a message, but to God. I want to ask every person who's here just one question. I believe it's the most important question a person can ever be asked. I want to ask you, are you right with God? I don't mean do you pray sometimes. I don't mean do you believe in God. I don't mean were you christened as a child. What I really mean is this. Has there ever been a moment in your life when you stopped and you asked for God's forgiveness and you invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life? You might be in this room today and maybe there's never been a moment like that. In just a moment, that's you. I'm going to ask you just to lift up your hand. I'll see it and acknowledge it and then you can put it down again. But just saying, Daniel, that's me. I'm not right with God, but would you pray with me? Would you include me in this prayer today? There might be other people who are here and you'd say, do you know what? I once prayed a prayer like that, but I'm away from God. I've gone my own way. But today I've come to my senses and I need to get right with God. And again, if that's you, I'm going to ask you in just a moment, just to lift up your hand. I'll see it and acknowledge it. And then you can put it down again. But you're saying, God, that's me. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you today, you want to respond to God, just right now, would you lift your hand? I'll see it and acknowledge it. Thank you so much. I see your hand. And just over here as well. Somebody else would say, Daniel, that's me. I'm not right with God, but would you pray with me? Or would you include me in this prayer today? Would you join those couple of people who've lifted their hands? I see that hand too. Is there one more person? You say, Daniel, that's me. I'm not right with God, but would you pray with me? And would you include me in this prayer today? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray a prayer with those that have lifted their hands today. And I don't know whether you've ever prayed before, but to make this really simple, I'm going to pray the first part of this prayer, and then I'm going to get you to repeat it after me. In fact, I'm going to get the whole church to pray this with us today. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that in that moment you start a friendship with him. In that moment you'll be saved. It's as simple as doing that. And so I'm going to pray the first part. I want you to believe it and say it even as we pray it together. Church, would you help us pray? Pray this out loud. Pray, dear Jesus, I come to you this morning and I realize that I need you. Jesus, I ask you, to forgive me of all of my mistakes. Jesus, wash my heart completely clean. Jesus, I thank you that you love me. 
that you proved it when you died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, from this morning on, I want to live for you. I want to be a Christian. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and change my life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Lord, I just pray for those three men this morning who lifted their hands. Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in their heart even right now. God, even before they get into their car and leave today, that God, they would know that they are right with you. Father, I pray today they would become aware of your forgiveness, that it might even feel like a weight that would fall from their shoulders. God, they become aware of your love, that God, it would feel like it's filling even their own soul. And that God, they become increasingly aware that they are favored by you, that you have a plan and a purpose for their life. God, beyond their wildest imaginations, God, I pray that they would become so convinced of that truth. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody say it one more time. Amen. 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 Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day and until next time, bless you.